Salam guys, I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. Since its launch, tens of thousands of Muslims have given zakat through NZF. We're the only platform with a national reach enabling you to give zakat to those who need it here. Across the country, Muslims are in need. Your zakat has the potential to change their lives. Just go to www.nzf.org.uk to calculate your zakat, choose how it's used, and keep updated about the impact it's having on the lives of Muslims where you live. NZF. Give zakat here. So today's interview is with Shabir Andheri, and Shabir is a man that I found really interesting to interview because he um, wears a whole bunch of different hats, uh, and he wears them quite lightly. So he has a background um, in his family business, and then he went into finance, uh, then he set up a property business where he was uh, one of the biggest buyers, if not the biggest buyers for a period of time, uh, with Allsop, which is the you know the biggest auction house in the UK, um, as, as people who will be in the property business will know. And, and then Shabir has spent time in venture capital. Um, he has spent time in philanthropy. So he's worn a whole bunch of different hats. And uh, I just found it fascinating to pick through his life um, and the various different lessons for entrepreneurs, but also for you know people doing charity and also for people um, you know running their family businesses. Um, it was really, really fascinating talking to him uh, and an absolute education. So I hope you guys enjoy. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Millionaire Muslim podcast. With me today, I've got the illustrious Shabir Randeri. When I was researching this podcast, you were referred to as the godfather of Islamic banking in the UK. And, you know, I came across your profile in the Islamica 500. So the kind of top 500 people who've had a lot of contribution to the Muslim world. This podcast is all about inspiring people, right? So I thought you know, we need to talk to you and find out your story. Shabir, before we kind of get into the corporate side of things and, you know, your career, where were you born and you know where did this all start? So assalamu alaikum everyone. Ibrahim, thanks for inviting me to this podcast. And I'll correct you even before we start by saying I'm definitely not the godfather of Islamic <laughs> Finance. I was privileged to be there at the early stage, but there are people like Iqbal Khan and others who I learned from, actually, although we are similar in age. My background actually dates back to South Africa. I was born in South Africa. Ah, okay. But I grew up in the UK. Uh, I was 15 when I came over, and my family of Indian origin. So we left India in the mid-1800s, 1865 to be precise, to South Africa. Whereabouts you, were you from in India? Well, most of the Indians in South Africa are based in Durban. Majority are in Durban, although my family is spread all over South Africa now, but we are from Durban originally. Yeah. And whereabouts were you from in India? So India, we come from Gujarat. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. So we're in a, from a small village, two villages actually, one where we get our name from, which is run there. And Randeri is from there. And the actual village we come from, which is very close by, is Kator, which is kind of annexed to Surat. Right. Well, Mohsin will be very happy, my co-founder and Islamic Finance Guru, because he's a Gujarati as is well. Okay. Yeah, so he's a, a very proud Gujarati as well. 
Good for him. Uh, <laughs> you moved to England. Whereabouts did you move to in England when you came? So my, um, we, we had some family here and my dad came in the mid-70s, partly for business reasons, and um, we settled in Wimbledon. Ah, okay. So um, purely because we had some family there and so, you know, I was very lucky he settled in Wimbledon and not some other less illustrious place. So I grew up in a very nice, uh, I'd say, you know, middle-class home, really. Fantastic. And do you think that where you have been in terms of your career, are there any things now that you think back and you think, you know, those were kind of really shaping moments or shaping events that I went through as a kid? I think the move from South Africa to the UK was probably the most significant change. South Africa, we lived in a fairly conservative, small C, conservative family background, extended family. So I spent more time with my grandparents than with my parents, cousins and families, large family. And that was also in the 70s, the 77, 78, when I came. South Africa was uh, an anomaly in the world in that it was an apartheid system. Yeah. So we were classified as uh, Indians uh, in South Africa. So you had the whites, you had the Indians, you had the coloreds, which were mixed race, and then you had the blacks. So coming from that apartheid background into London, to me, it was like Dick Whittington walking here in the streets, <laughs> lined with, paved with gold for me. It wasn't quite that, but yeah. it was very exciting. And wow. of course, coming from an English-speaking country, English was my first language. Uh, so I fitted in fairly easily. And yeah. our education system there was modeled on the British system. So it wasn't that difficult. And really, even though it was apartheid, I came from a fairly middle-class family, well-educated background, my family full of um, professionals and business people. It wasn't as difficult for me as it would have been for yeah. many others to make that transition. But that transition moving in the 70s, that probably had the biggest impact. You talk about sliding doors, yeah. where my life would have gone if my mm. mother and father didn't make that move. So that had a huge impact on me, yes. No, I think that makes sense. I could probably say the same. A lot of our families would probably say the same who came across. Of because, course, yeah. You know, you look back now and you look at family members who didn't maybe make the move and where they've ended up. And sometimes it's just down to luck. So you came to Wimbledon and did you study in London or did you go outside London to study? How did you kind of your career start and your thinking start about where you wanted to go with your life? So the schooling side was in Wimbledon. The main school I went to was in Wimbledon. I did my O-levels in those days and then my A-levels. Probably spent too much time on the sports field. Right. In another life, I would have been a sports person because that was my first passion. What, what sports? Um, cricket and table tennis were the ah, two, really. Okay. So I played sort of more or less uh, school level uni and then kind of county level. Not for cricket, uh, table tennis mainly. I chose between the two. And then post-schooling, I ended up doing an accounting and finance degree um, with economics in at Kingston. Ah, okay, nice. So I'm alumni of Kingston University. And then I went on and did an MBA at the American University here in London called Schiller International in those days. Ah, okay. So in the mid-80s, if you did an MBA in London, you were quite an anomaly. Really? Oh, yeah. There was no one doing MBAs in the UK in the mid-80s. In fact, there weren't many universities that did an MBA. Interesting. So I went to the American University, and that between Kingston and that, that was my grounding. Probably the MBA, I thoroughly enjoyed my time in Kingston, and I got a very good degree. But the year and a bit I spent doing the MBA was another momentous period for me because I met people from all around the world. And um, I changed from being 
an average student to a very good student during mm-hmm. that year, <laughs> partly because I started to see, it started to resonate to me that grades mattered yeah. and um, it opened doors for you. So I went through that transformation in that year in the mid-80s. Yeah. Interesting. This is the 80s that we're talking about. What was it like as a Muslim in these kind of academic environments? Because I know now in London, I mean, half the Muslim community live in, in London and there's a lot of Muslims in the student bodies. What was it like back in the 80s? Two quick points I'll make to you. The first is it was very different. I went on to study later on at London Business School. I went to Harvard as well, did some of my banking classes there, etc. And that was after a gap of about 15 years right. when I did that. And the whole landscape had changed in that 15 years. So when I was at Kingston, this was from 81 to 84, really in my accounting and finance classes with economics, if my memory serves me right, I was one of only two Muslims on the whole course. Wow. Last year, I was given an honorary doctorate at Kingston. And um, they asked me to do an address to the students. And so I went and uh, did an address to the students. And I did say that the landscape looked very, very different because when I graduated, the number of students of diversity, you could count on your two hands. Yeah, yeah. When I went for this graduation, uh, it was completely different. And I commended the academic, uh, the vice chancellor and those who were responsible for the university for having embraced diversity in the way they have. It was phenomenal. I mean, I attended a graduation for engineering students in my day in the engineering class because I knew some of them through the sports side it was all white I mean this was 84 it was literally all white and now it was more than 50% of diversity and of course gender as well huge huge change yeah so the landscape has changed drastically from what I had then I don't think we were as aware of being Muslims or discrimination other universities my friends were at some of the top universities in the country some might disagree with that, but in Kingston, certainly, my I, I was never aware of being Muslim or yeah, Asian or yeah, yeah, anything yeah. like that. I think today that awareness has gone up. Of course, yeah. So it's it's a plus and a minus. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Having done your studies, how did you transition in? What was the kind of first steps you took in your career? And how did that segue into becoming what others have termed as, you know, a leading pioneer in Islamic finance and Islamic banking. So not that my Urdu or Gujarati is that great, but the word takdir in destiny plays a part in all of our lives at some point and quite regularly in most cases. So I was destined, like a lot of people who had done the course I did, to go and work for one of the accounting firms and become a chartered accountant. Instead, I spent six to nine months in a business, which um, a friend of mine was involved in. So I got to taste a little bit of business. And then I decided to delay my accounting articles, as they called it, and went and did the MBA. And of course, never went back into accounting. Because the MBA, as I said earlier, was a kind of, for me, the aha moment, so to speak. And I realized um, I didn't really want to follow a profession And uh, the two things that came across to me were business and entrepreneurship. Hmm. And that I identified in that year that I did the MBA. What were your kind of thoughts about what you want to do? So I I started to look around. Um, The first area that appealed to me was the finance and the banking side. So I had a couple of offers from some of the banks in those days to go and work with them. A late uncle of mine from South Africa who was on the board of a couple of banks in South Africa 
said to me, I understand the attraction you have towards that, but why don't you join the family business first? We had a finance side of the family business. I see. It was very small. It was trade finance. What was the family business? Mainly trade finance and textile and clothing. Right. Yeah. Um, so, and, and these were not large businesses or anything. They, yeah. they were small. So he said to me, why don't you join, join there, spend a year, learn about that before you get committed to one of these big banks? And again, you know, it's probably very good advice I received. I thought nothing to lose. Uh, I was in my early 20s. So I joined the family side for a year and spent most of my time in the Far East learning about business, really trading. Yeah. I didn't actually end up spending that much time on the finance side because I was fascinated with the trading side. So I spent 18 months mostly in the Far East, in and out. And that then led me to want to do two things. And one of them was to start my own business. Um, and the two ideas I came up with, amongst others, uh, were structured finance, because I saw a gap between what companies like ours did yeah. and the banks did. And I saw a gap in between. And again, this wasn't my idea by speaking to yeah. people who, yeah. who had been there before and identified this gap. And this was now you're getting towards the late 80s. Right. And the second idea I had was to get into the investment side because that's what I had studied. That's where my passion lay. Yeah. So I wanted to do um, get involved in the investment side. And the opportunity arose to do some debt trading, which was all the rage in the late 80s. Right. And so that was the first banking business I did, was setting up a desk and partnered with two very big banks who I never actually worked for, even though I had a card from them. Um, I didn't really work for them, but I became their uh, representative yeah. for African debt, which they wanted to get rid of. I basically. see, I see. And then alongside with that, I started the structured finance business, which I have to be grateful to my father and others for helping me because yeah. they knew that business better than me. When you say structured finance for our audience, what does that mean? So structured finance basically meant facilitating the movement of goods hmm. from A to B. So the majority of goods in the UK or in Africa already in the 80s, in the late 80s, early 90s, was were coming from the Far East. Hmm. So if you were an importer... Uh, based in in Kenya or in Zimbabwe or South Africa, uh, you needed those goods to travel, you know, from Taiwan or Philippines or India or wherever yeah. to your country. And so, structured finance dealt with all the different blocks that facilitated the movement of that container of goods, including the finance I see. from A to B. Interesting, yeah. interesting. And so, you were running this desk, uh, African Debt Desk. And then what was the next step where you went into Islamic finance? How did that come about? So during that period, I met some very interesting people, Far East and in Africa. I reconnected with my roots in South Africa with my family, who a lot of them were traders, business people generally. Yeah, yeah. So I started to see what their requirements were, what they needed. Uh, so the business, you know, after uh, probably within about 24 months, really grew rapidly. And the debt trading was very profitable. Yeah. But that I knew was a short-term business. Uh, so I needed to build another business, which was a bit more secure. Yeah. As it happened, during that two-year period, just as my business was taking off, the family side of the business, which was a very large family business, but in the UK, only my father was here, nobody yeah. else. Um, my late uncle again approached me and said, why don't you rejoin? Partly because they were having some stress with the management that they right. had, which were all non-family. In fact, my father was the only family member right. in the business. There's no one else. So they asked me to join the business, and I 
I agreed to join on the basis that I could continue growing my business. Yeah. I probably hadn't factored in the stimulus I would get by being part of a slightly larger organization than a you know, three-man office the way I had it. Yeah. So little Philip I got at that stage, that boost I got, um, really grew my business rapidly. And then I helped out on the family side to restructure that business and yeah. refocus it. And that led me to two things. One was a demand around the world for real estate in the UK. So the two things the UK was um, particularly good at exporting, inverted commas, yeah. one was banking, yeah. banking services. Yeah. And the second was actually investment in terms of real estate because we were seen as the safe zone for especially Commonwealth individuals to invest in. So that's what I started to do. So I bought the first commercial properties that I bought in the late 80s. And then the crash came in early 1990, actually, the crash came. And that, again, you know, just fortuitous for me that the crash came, prices fell. And the barriers to entry to the commercial property market, which were there when I joined, yeah, yeah. suddenly disappeared overnight. It was quite remarkable. Wow. So I ended up in a very, very fortunate situation um, of being able to acquire real estate for investors from abroad and make a fee on that. Yeah. Really interesting. And uh, did you were you targeting commercial property in central London, or was it all over the country? Or I mean, these days, you know, you've got these auction houses. Was it the same kind of situation, all sorts and that sort yes. of thing? So we were um, again um, not trying to be arrogant or anything, but in the early nineties, we were all sorts largest private client really? for a number of years. Wow. Yeah. It was a boom era. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't think in my lifetime, certainly I won't see anything like that again. Mm. And it, it, the UK was a very different place. It's not like it is today. Even post-Brexit, um, the UK is still a vibrant uh, place and London in particular in the southeast. Um, in the early 90s, we had a very different image of the UK. And so property and real estate was obviously not in demand locally. So that for the foreign investors, it became a buyer's market. I built a team of surveyors and property people because I didn't know the industry. Yeah, yeah. So I built a team. That's the first proper team I built in my mm. life, actually. And How many and people were in the team? At the height, it ran into you know, dozens of people. Um, and then, um, you know, so that, that was built in the early 90s, right up till 2006, seven when we started to cut it down with the crisis and the, and, the, and the recession that came after that. So that was a good journey and, and building up a whole team. And, and today, my sister runs that particular business, ah, okay. um, property management and services business, and they have a team of 25 or so. A lot of it is outsourced. But to answer your question, yes, we went countrywide, not just here. And and we did a lot of the early sale and leaseback um, properties that were sold by some of the large organizations. So British Gas, for example, as it uh, denationalized, we bought the portfolio of properties from them uh, on a sale and leaseback. I see, yeah, yeah. I see. Out of interest, who, who were the lawyers involved in? Was it, I imagine it was a mixture of all the different So in, in those days, I had um, a lawyer who is, is passed away, unfortunately, uh, Christopher Wilson, uh, from, from Wimbledon, where we grew up. So he was my main advisor, and uh, he did bulk of the work, and I had a very good agreement with him. So I didn't have to pay abortives, et cetera, et cetera, because right. I couldn't afford it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, we used larger firms, um, the, the more well-known ones, for larger transactions. Makes sense. But the small firm from Wimbledon actually saw us through most of it. Yeah, it's surprising how you know you don't necessarily need a prestigious law firm. No, absolutely. Uh, to do a lot of the work. Property 
property conveyancing uh, lawyers won't like me f- for saying this, but it's it's not a rocket science. No, uh, no. I, I, I imagine at the you know the, the bigger properties, the higher end, it would be obviously helpful. Where you know you've got like an Ashurst or someone to have like a full service thing. But I completely agree with you. I mean, I, I speak as a lawyer. Um, I wouldn't use an expensive law firm unless I absolutely had to. So you set up this really successful business. You're, it's going through the boom era. At what point? So Dan was a, a mentor of mine. He describes how Islamic Bank of Britain and the early seeds of Islamic finance actually started, I think, in this office or very associated with you. So how did that story come about? So in the early 2000s, I said earlier, you know, there's two things came out of that period for me. One was the real estate investment side and the other was an interest in Islamic finance. I always had an interest in the banking side, etc. And we did trade finance and we partnered with a number of banks. My uncle actually introduced me to Sheikh Saleh Kamel from Al-Baraka while he was in London. And I went and had lunch with them one day. And uh, the Sheikh said to me, why don't you get involved in Islamic finance? <laughs> and uh, I was a skeptic, like a lot of people. Yeah. And I still remember somebody with him quoted me, you know, the verse from Surah Al-Baqarah about declaring war. Yeah. On, on those who take or give yeah. riba. So that stuck with me for a while. I had a fortuitous encounter then meeting with Iqbal um, Khan of all places in New York. I happened to be in New York. We, have, we had a business in New York and I went along. I'd met him and he invited me. So I went along. He was giving a talk on why we should get involved in Islamic finance and cut a long story short, I came back and started to make more inquiries. The first product actually pre-IBB, the first listed product was called uh, HMIC, Halal Mutual Investment Company, right? Uh, registered out of Dublin. And that was the first investment vehicle on a Sharia basis. And through that, I met a number of people. And then this gentleman, Michael Carter, who came up with the idea for IBB, Islamic Bank of Britain. So the slight anecdotal uh, side, IBB was the first banking license given in the Western world. But Al-Baraka in South Africa in 1989, which my uncle was involved in, was the first Islamic banking license outside a Muslim country. And that was in 1989 in South Africa. In 2004, August 2004, the license for IBB was given. And yes, we were in our city offices in those days. IBB started, the first office was in my office. And then we recruited Michael Hanlon, who was the first MD, etc., etc. So IBB started from there, August 2004. Two years later, we got the license for EIIB. European Islamic Investment Bank. So yeah. the founder director on both, I was lucky, right place at the right time. To all intents and purposes, non-exact, but not quite for a period of time. And then I chaired EIIB before I stood down around 2006. Wow. Uh, I stood down. So those were the two Islamic banking experiences I had here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I joined the board of Al Baraka in South Africa, and I'm the vice. That's the only one I've retained uh, currently uh, yeah. as vice chairman. And then Bank Islami in Pakistan, I was a co-founder with the JS Group. Really? And that... How many Islamic uh, banks have you... So again, four (laughs) banks in particular. And then Islamic Bank, BIP is a listed bank on the KSE. They've got about 400 odd branches, a retail bank. I sat on the board of that for, I think, two to three years maybe at the most. Yeah. I have to say I didn't particularly uh, set out to do all of that. Yeah. But the market was still very young and new. And so I was just in the right place at the right time. What would you say is your kind of learning from, you know, that era of 
essentially, in these days, it's fashionable to say you're a startup. What you were doing with these banks is essentially that, right? You were starting up a business from scratch. What kind of advice do you have? Like, what kind of learnings do you have about, you know, the key moves that a business needs to make in the first year, two years? My professor from London Business School wrote this book called The Business Road Test. And then he wrote a follow-up to it as well. And um, my mentors at the time, when IBB was starting, who were very seasoned bankers, were trying to tell us the same thing. And we probably didn't do enough road testing before we launched, Mm. which I learned then with subsequent banks. So with IBB, we endured a very long period of poor performance. And we never really hit our targets until much later. And you mentioned Sultan earlier. I recall when we hired him, it took many years for us to put right what we did wrong in the early period. So I would certainly encourage entrepreneurs and those in the startup situation that research, there's no substitute for research and road testing your ideas before you actually get going. Mm. When you say road testing, do you mean talk to customers or? A bit more in depth to that. So if uh, my, you know, I'm plugging the book for my professor, but um, (laughs) he gives a much more detailed. What's it called, the book? It's called The Business Road Test. The Business Road Test. It's a good way to understand how far you need to research before you launch your yeah. product. Yeah. Now, of course, there are exceptions to the rule with everything. You know, somebody could uh, put something on social media today and it catches on immediately. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's yeah. your research. But most businesses have to spend time with market research, and we didn't do enough with mm. IBB. So when EIB launched or BIP launched in Pakistan, we did do much more research. So we hit the road running, so to speak. You understood the market. We understood the market. The product made sense. What we underestimated in IBB, and I think all too often entrepreneurs do the same, and I ran a VC for 10 years. We did the same in the VC. We had 26 investments across all sorts of businesses. And if I was to look at a post-mortem of those that were successful and those that were not, and excluding the one or two that might have been just at the right place at the right time, the norm is that those who research and do their homework properly are going to be more successful. Yeah. than the ones that are going to stick a finger up in the air. And that was probably my biggest takeaway. And I, like any investor and entrepreneur, you're not going to win every investment uh, you yeah. make. But the ones that we've done better on over the in the last 25 years, certainly where we backed people yeah. who did have the road test. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I wish, to be honest, we, um, we had more time because uh, I think there's a lot more probably to be mined around this Islamic banking area. But I want to jump onto your venture side. Uh, so you spend a few years in the venture space, Sussex Partners, right? Sussex, yeah, Sussex Partners. Right. That was a kind of unexpected. You know, I was looking at your CV. I was like, oh, that's really interesting because a lot of bankers kind of just head down and stay in banking or a lot of people in real estate, that's where they stick to. What caused the shift to the venture space? And um, talk to us about how that whole thing went and what were the challenges there? So I had two large experiences in the VC side, one which became homegrown in a business that we had for 10, 12 years almost. And as I said, we invested in 26 businesses there. Sussex West Ventures is a pseudo incubator from London Business School. And I sat on the board of that and then invested in a number of companies through there and helped them invest. Generally, second round, third round, but we originally started with startups, a lot of mainly fintech and that sort of area. My interest in the area actually comes back partly to the Islamic ethos as well, because you know venture capital and Islamic ethos and banking are actually hand in glove. Of course, yeah. Based on profit, based on risk, 
reward and governed by very simple principles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, like I like to quote 18th century philosopher Adam Smith in Wealth of Nations, and he talks about responsible capitalism. Mm. Okay. And so I felt that by helping young businesses or investing in young businesses and guiding them to be responsible entrepreneurs would be something I'd like to do. I didn't imagine it's going to grow in the way it did. And then we sold it off because uh, we couldn't really handle it yeah. at one stage. What did you sell off, sorry? We sold off most of the businesses in the right. end. And of course, we lost a lot of them as well, as you do in, yeah. a, in a VC business. But the areas that were the most successful that we invested in there were the tech ones. Because again, this was you know early 2000s, yeah, yeah. tech boom. So we did very well in the tech space. I sold it off and went back to our core businesses, which were on the investment side mainly because I didn't want to grow the business either through leverage at that stage and I didn't want to build a fund. Mm. So my next stop on that would have been building a fund. Yeah. And I wouldn't discourage anyone from doing it, but it yeah. wasn't for me at that stage. Yeah. Unfortunately, 2007 happened and that was the, yeah. uh, the rude awakening for my generation of entrepreneurs because immaterial what you did um, the collateral damage of what happened in 2007-8 hmm. post Bear Stearns and Lehman left us all reeling. Yeah. And in our case, um, more so because Lehman on the real estate side were our biggest partners. Really? Oh my God, okay. So obviously we didn't anticipate course, yeah. um, no one you know, did. what happened. Yeah. That led to a complete recalibration on yeah. the personal journey and then reflecting you know, a few years later that we survived that crash. Uh, albeit having taken some very significant hits and losses, etc. And then we downsized our businesses, sold stuff off, and, and refocused. Yeah. Um, we were fortunate because we were not leveraged as such heavily, but Islamic finance and leveraging at that stage, mm. sukuks, etc., did not help us, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Why did they not help you? Well, primarily, Islamic finance is not a foolproof system when things go wrong mm. because the structures effectively still have somebody as an investor through the sukuk yeah. and so they have rights quite rightly yeah. when losses happen in those sort of situations when it's a free fall situation yeah. like it was in 2008 and 9 a lot right of those sukuks just collapsed yeah. basically but remember they were new the first time they were done mm. so typical sukuk um, we invested one in Bahrain and that collapsed entirely with investors getting zero back on it yeah so it was quite an extreme situation. And I hope, you know, I've now come out of the industry, but I hope that the new versions of these sukuks will be written better and be yeah. fairer for both investor, for the mudarib, and for the investor as yeah. well, both yeah. sides. Yeah. Makes sense. You know, you've had a really, really deep insight in the Islamic finance world, also mainstream finance, um, real estate, venture. So I thought it'd be really interesting to ask you where you see the current trends going in these sectors like where are the next big things coming in terms of the kind of startups the kind of areas that people like me who yeah, do yeah. angel investing should be looking at that's a very interesting point and i have a young son i've got three young sons one who's now in business one who's an architect and one who's in the university doing economics so i'm getting a lot of feedback from them and i only mention them because of their age group you yeah, yeah, yeah so get a lot of feedback from them as to the new economy etc and of course, being on the board of Sussex Place Ventures gave me a good insight as well over the last five, six years. I think the Islamic side actually has much more potential now than it did in my era. 
Interesting. Because we were fighting against a system where Islamic banking constituted 1% of world banking. So yeah. we were fighting against the 99%. And it was very difficult. Immaterial, there was a demand for Islamic finance. So that was very tough. Now I think in the virtual economy, you can go digital, basically. Of course, Simple yeah. as that. So reaching 1.6 billion Muslims has never been easier. Yeah, we yeah. couldn't reach them through our banking platforms yeah. because we had too much of competition and yeah. the competition were bigger than us, they had deeper pockets and they were cheaper. Yeah, which, which just okay. makes it a lot harder. So on the digital finance, you're on level playing field. Yeah. So if I had to reinvest today or help mm. any organization in the space, that's probably where I would spend my time mm. trying to help them because I think, again, forgive me for being self glorifying on this for my generation because no. we, we did a lot of things wrong I think but the one thing we did do was set some foundations mm. down which I think your generation can build on yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and the license is this digital I think yeah. yeah I think that makes a lot of sense I mean our kind of key thesis on Islamic finance gurus is similar in that we see that before there used to be jurisdictional boundaries and as you said Arayan is competing against HSBC mm-hmm. whereas when you get rid of that when you get rid of the jurisdictions Monzo, Revolut, these guys they're going global Absolutely. Um, and anyone can access them anywhere yeah. and so when you do that I think the Muslim community then starts looking like a bit of a country in itself mm-hmm. and if you can then harness that potential effectively then I think there's something to be done. In terms of like, what kind of things do you think in the Islamic fintech space? So like we, we're seeing digital challenger banks, SME finance, uh, we're seeing retail finance, we're seeing invoice financing, we're seeing all sorts of the weird and the wonderful and the mainstream. Have you turned your thoughts at all to um, the kind of areas that you would have liked to have seen if the market or the opportunity had presented? Again, you know, you mentioned earlier about startups. Yeah. Okay, and VCs as well. And I think that's the one area which is, let's say, low-hanging fruit. And if you went into a digital platform and you were able to reach those individuals around the world uh, who had those ideas, whether it's in the halal economy or wider than the halal economy, then I think that's where I would probably say would be the first mover advantage in that. Um, The one point I would make, and I know time is short, but the one point I would make is that when people argue about why we should support Islamic finance initiative or a bank, Islamic bank or a, a company which is uh, working on Sharia, etc. And they compare, they're comparing notes on traditional competitors. I always try and remind, especially the younger generation, by saying that if you support these organizations, they don't have to be the only organizations you support, but by supporting them, um, have an eye on what they do for your society and your community. Mm. And I come back to organizations that have built whether it's um, schools, colleges, mosques, whatever. They've built uh, health centers. And we, in our small way, have done the same through Al-Barqa. That actually has given me the most pleasure to see because from our prophets, we're able to do that. Other communities do that. The Muslims actually, again, my knowledge is not that great on this, but I've seen less of this in our community than I've seen in some other communities. Mm who they support their own, not mm-hmm. only, but they support their own, yeah. and they plow the money back yeah. for the benefit of all their communities. Yeah, yeah. And that sounds like a very high moral stance, yeah. but I'm hoping that your generation will do more of that than we did, actually. Yeah, I think so. definitely something to aspire to. Shabir, I wish we had more time, but I thought finally it'd be good to touch base with you on you know, what are the key things that are occupying you right now that you think about 
and also three books or a book that you could recommend that we should read. So right now, I'm very fortunate in that my brother and my sister are looking after the business that we have after we scaled it down and we split it amongst the families. So we have a much smaller business than we did 10 years back. So it's given me an opportunity to do something else and hopefully, you know, very common saying, try and give back. Yeah. yeah. So I'm doing three things at the moment. I'm all not-for-profit, educational space, interfaith space and then in the business space as well the first two probably more relevant educational space so i'm a trustee of the princess trust and i chair mosaic the mentoring program which prince charles started to mentor mainly muslim young students school-going children and that program has now grown not only for muslim and non-muslims as well so i still chair that and being the first muslim trustee for the princess trust gives me huge satisfaction yeah i also i'm the chancellor of uel university of east london so that gives me a very nice insight into what i think is probably one of the most diverse universities mm. in the uk Absolutely. certainly in london and then i'm also chair of a school secondary school a state school called the westminster academy which has a 60 percent plus muslim diaspora and mainly from north africa in that area So that's been a very interesting five-year journey as well to see what challenges are there for the youth coming through. So three different stages of life. I'm also involved on the interfaith side. I sit as a trustee for the Wolf Institute in Cambridge and uh, possibly one of the leading interfaith research organizations in the UK. We publish Missing Muslims reports. Uh, partly an APPG group work, etc. So that interface side also sits very comfortably for me as to what I'd like to do. That's what's keeping me busy at the moment in many respects. I guess the mantra I have right now is probably on the tip of the tongue for most Muslims and others who who are in tune with what is going on in the world, not just in the United Kingdom, which, you know, I'm very proud of the UK. I think this is probably the best country in the world to live in. I choose to live here. I think it was the American author, Dylan Burroughs, who said, God's love does not stop at the border, Mm. neither should ours. And so I embrace this philosophy and think that we should be building bridges, not walls, Mm. wherever we go. Not just as Muslims, but as human beings. But especially as Muslims right now, so I try and encourage that ethic wherever I go. 100%, 100%. In terms of books, uh, two books I'll give yeah, you. Uh, yeah. One is Margaret Macmillan, one of my favorite historian writers. And the book she wrote, which is very topical at the moment, it's called The War That Ended Peace. And it's uh, centered around the First World War. Fascinating read. Uh, remarkable uh, synergies to today. And this mm. was, she starts around 1900, basically. Yeah. So, you know, it's 120 years ago. But the similarities are just unbelievable and talk about history repeating itself. Fascinating. Uh, so that's one of them. The other one I'm still reading, I haven't got through all the way, is uh, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, which is uh, Yuval Hariri, the Israeli writer and thinker. And uh, this one is talking about the challenges for your generation, but also for us. And he's picked 21 Lessons for the 21st Century you know, you can skip through the ones that are less interesting to you. Yeah. But again, it's fascinating because he's written it in the context yeah, yeah. of mankind's journey and where we are at right now. I'll definitely include these in the podcast description so that our audience can get hold of this. Uh, Shabir, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you. And uh, I've learned an incredible amount. And inshallah, we'll, you know, maybe we should get you onto the podcast in the future to, uh, you know, dig deeper into all of these things. Jazakallah khairan for coming on. I uh, right. really appreciate it. Um, assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam, Ibrahim. Thank you very much, and to everyone who's listening as well. Assalamu alaikum.
If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.